Uh, well, I just had a very interesting and insightful conversation with the commissioner of the FSCA, Mr. Runati Gamlana. Uh, we spoke about, among a few other things, the Twin Peaks regulatory model, uh, what it is that necessitated it, what purpose it serves, as well as, but not limited to, uh, how it's done thus far. Uh, we also then talk, of course, about the global financial crisis of 2008 or the regulatory failure in that crisis, which, of course, is often cited as being the cornerstone for the new regulatory regime. We further then talk about the dissolution of the FSA in England uh, and what it is that necessitated the split of the peaks in England. And then, of course, bring the issue back to South Africa and talk about the South African regulatory model. We then talk, of course, about crypto and Bitcoin, because how could we not? Um, and then, of course, the FSCA's fine on Viceroy, uh, which has been on everybody's lips lately. Of course, we spoke about a whole host of other things. So please do stay tuned for the conversation to hear what the commission had to say about some of the issues. And I must just say that this is uh, my first virtual podcast. And so it did have its you know, technical issues. So please do bear with me and listen to the conversation. You, still, you should still be able to hear uh, what you need to hear from the conversation. Enjoy. Uh, well, I'm very excited that we get to have this conversation finally. Uh, it's been a very, very long time in the making. We were actually scheduled to have this discussion back in July. Uh, but as I mentioned in a previous conversation, I was uh, stuck in KZN uh, because my time at home unfortunately coincided with the riots. And so I found myself being stuck in KZN for a lot longer mm -hmm. than I had expected. Um, but I am back in Stellenbosch and I'm really looking forward to having this conversation. It's, it's really been one of the conversations I've, most, or I've been looking forward to most. Um, and before I waffle away for too long, I'll just introduce my guest. I'm joined today by Unati Gamlana. Uh, who, before joining the FSCA as its commissioner in June of this year, worked at the South African Reserve Bank as the head of the Prudential Policy, Stats and Legal Support Department. Uh, Unati, it's a great privilege to talk to you today. Welcome, uh, and thank you so much for making the time. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm um, looking forward to the conversation as well. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I incidentally was a part of the um, media roundtable discussion that you hosted the other day about Viceroy, etc. Uh, and I thought to myself, geez, uh, what a serious guy. And I was, you know, rethinking my decision to invite you onto the podcast after hearing you speak so seriously. Um, but that is, of course, a conversation that we will get into a bit later on in today's conversation, because I think I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about that. But I wanted to talk quickly, or I think before we begin everything, by you know talking about the Twin Peaks regulatory model, which I did mention would be the subject of today's conversation. Um, for those who might not know what the Twin Peaks regulatory model is, do you mind perhaps explaining it to um, s some of the listeners? Sure. So, so Twin Peaks um, actually refers to the two regulatory, main regulatory authorities in the financial sector uh, in South Africa. Generally, it is called Twin Peaks as a model uh, of regulatory architecture. So you have this um, similar arrangement in other parts of the world, United Kingdom, the Netherlands, um, Australia, and then ourselves, uh, where you've got a separate market conduct regulator focuses on conduct issues and securities oversight compared to another regulator, the second one, uh, which is the prudential regulator focusing on institutional soundness and financial stability considerations. So that's, that's what Twin Peaks uh, means. 
Okay, and, and I mentioned in the introductory remarks that you worked for both uh, of the peaks of regulation, and I think that's partly why I invited you over to have this conversation with, because you did work, as I mentioned earlier, at the Prudential Authority, which is the one peak of regulation, and you are working now um, at the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, which is the second regulatory uh, peak, um, or, or the market conduct peak, as the people in the industry would call it. Um, so I think let's start with the Prudential Authority, which you did work at uh, for... Uh, a very brief uh, period. Um, so th the idea of regulating prudential issues, wh what is it that necessitated um, the split uh, from what we had traditionally under the FSB's model um, to you know, the new regulatory model? And I think it owes most of its uh, origins to the crisis of 2008, I mean, the subprime derivative crisis of 2008. So I think, well, of course, the crisis of 2008 that I refer to um, is the banking crisis of 2008. And I think it's worthwhile perhaps talking about the banking regulatory uh, backbone, which is the Prudential Authority in South Africa. Um, what is it that necessitated um, the or, or the South African legislators to, uh, to 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 take the banks or to regulate the banks under a prudential uh, reg regulator, which is a, a creature of the constitution that sits uh, at the Reserve Bank of South Africa. A couple of things. So um, maybe to start with saying that although obviously in terms of the economic impact of the global financial crisis, so the two thousand and eight crisis that you referred to. The economic impact was felt um, far and wide, including in South Africa, but we did not experience a financial crisis uh, during that period. But what we considered, given the context, was what can be done to further enhance and strengthen the regulatory architecture in South Africa. And I think perhaps it was done in a preemptive way, in a proactive way. And what informed the particular choice of architecture was the attractiveness of regulating um, by objective. Uh, what I mean by that is to have a dedicated focus for each regulator, as opposed to uh, the model that many parts of the world had before that, which was a single regulator model. Now, of course, in South Africa, you didn't have a single regulator, but you had a bank versus non-bank regulator right. and the important change or shift of twin peaks is that both regulators have got full scope of the financial sector but different objectives mm. so the market conduct regulator has a mostly consumer protection orientation and focus um, and it was felt that if you've got dedicated focus you can um, stand better uh, to, to achieve better regulatory outcomes than if you have competing objectives mm. within one regulator. And certainly in the previous Financial Services Board, the previous Financial Services Board had both a prudential and a conduct um, objective uh, for the non-banking financial sector. Um, and currently, the Financial Sector Conduct Authority has no prudential objective, it's got a conduct objective. The Prudential Authority has, as the name suggests, um, a prudential uh, objective, looking after soundness of institutions, looking after financial stability um, implications, um, and so on. And they don't have a conduct uh, objective uh, as, as a prudential authority. 
So that is the main change. That is also what motivated um, the, the, the shift to Twin Peaks to move towards dedicated focus, resourcing each regulator with the skills and expertise that pertain to that dedicated focus um, for better regulatory outcomes. That really was the motivation. Okay. Yeah, and I was about to ask before you stop now, um, how big an impact the dissolution of the FSA in England had on South Africa's uh, change uh, you know, toward this Twin Peaks regulatory model, because England, um, you know, obviously d- dissolved the FSA because it, they had, as you quite rightly mentioned, a single peak regulator uh, building up to the crisis of 2008. Um, and when the crisis hit and the bank meltdown started happening, the single peak regulator proved entirely incapable of regulating banks at that point. And so um, as a corrective measure, they then split the peaks. They sent the banks back back to the Bank of England from which they've taken or after they'd taken them away in, I think, 2000 um, and, you know, sent them to the FSA. But I I guess the question that I have is we in South Africa did not uh, take the banks out of the um, South African Reserve Bank. The the Registrar of Banks still sat at the South African Reserve Bank. um, And and so it didn't really, I guess it doesn't make sense or I can't completely understand why um, we then, you know, sort of followed a very similar model, had, you know, because we didn't make the kind of mistake that England made. Uh, and the mistake that I refer to is taking the banks out of the uh, central bank, which they did in 2000. We, of course, did not do that. And so, I mean, I guess the question that I had was, um, you know, h- how much uh, influence did the dissolution of the FSA and the dissolution of that single peak regulator and the move toward a twin peak regulatory model in England have on South Africa's move? in the same direction? Yes, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think actually it was absolutely coincidental um, that our change happened almost at the same time when we started the, these conversations. Uh, I think 2011 we published the uh, the Red Book. I was at the Treasury at the time, that was bef- just before I joined the Central Bank. Yeah. Remember, the, the, the UK Twin Peaks model is not the first Twin Peaks model. Right. Um, the Netherlands and Australia had Twin Peaks before uh, the United Kingdom. Um, and in fact, that's why I was saying here, the focus was this attractiveness of a dedicated focus um, of regulators, as opposed to the context in the UK, which was that regulatory um, functions were moved completely outside uh, Bank of England into the FSA. We didn't have that here. Mm. Um, the only thing here that I think is maybe important to mention around the scope of coverage of the former FSB is that the former FSB did not have a conduct regulatory um, um, mandate over retail banking, which was a big gap um, given the importance of retail banking. Um, And therefore the the FSCA has got a full um, conduct objective over the entire financial sector. Um, which, which is an important change, of course, an extension and expansion of, um, of the mandate compared to the former uh, FSB. So in terms of us, of course, looking at international models, because we did have, um, we actually had a study tour to, to visit uh, those parts of the world where Twin Peaks was in existence and the UK was one of them. And it was that, it was one of the examples we looked at. Um, our design was not in any um, over-emphasizing way affected by, by the decisions that they were taking. It was helpful, of course, that uh, when we started, 
uh, they were also just establishing Twin Peaks and there were things that were fresh in their minds uh, in terms of things to look out for mm. as we were thinking about uh, our own Twin Peaks. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. And I think just to talk about South Africa and just move away from the international community, um, I listened to a, a conversation that you had. I can't quite remember what the channel was called, but this was during the time you were at the Prudential Authority. Um, and there was a very interesting question that was asked by the interviewer. He asked about the, um, the banking reserve requirements of 250 million rands, um, which you know need to be unencumbered um, f as deposit to protection, if you will. Uh, he asked you that question and he asked, could that not be interpreted as a barrier to entry in the banking market? And I think you gave a very interesting answer. You said um, it, it is indeed a barrier to entry because in this sector of the economy, you were referring to banking, barriers of entry are necessary. Um, and, and that hit me like a light bulb. I had a light bulb moment and I thought, aha, I get it. You know, it makes sense why it, it could rightly be viewed as a barrier to entry. But the question I have is, and I can completely understand, and, you know, I, 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 yeah, I understand that line of argumentation, but could it not be seen um, as, uh, as counterproductive in the sense that what it's doing is it's creating these too big to fail institutions um, and it's eliminating competition and that would not uh, or, or, would, or could it not at least in part be argued that that would come at the direct expense of the consumers that the mandate seeks to protect a couple of things i mean i think uh, maybe two parts um, to that question the first is around regulatory requirements uh, minimum regulatory requirements in a regulated sector um, and in, in this case banking and the other is the evolution of the market structure um, in banking and the financial sector in general in South Africa. So the, the first one, um, yes, I mean, I still, I still think that it is quite correct in a sector of the economy where the failure um, of institutions is socialized and uh, the backstop to that sector is the fiscus uh, that you have robust and uh, strong uh, um, requirements for entry, barriers to entry, uh, because you want to make sure that there is adequate uh, resources to protect depositors before you can have recourse to public funds. Mm. That's, that's, that, that's the sort of uh, theoretical underpinning of regulatory requirements. In fact, uh, just to point that, it's been 250 million rand since 2001. Mm. Uh, and before then, it was, I think, about 50 million rand. And it's not changed since 2001. I mean, just to make that point, of course, that uh, perhaps the, the real number is, is significantly less if you take into account inflation. So that's the, re the regulatory requirements. The market structure question is an, is an interesting one. What is about um, the crisis that we, crises that we have experienced in South Africa, the failure of banks uh, between 1998 and 2001, uh, given the Asian crisis, and of course, uh, the need in South Africa during that time to, to respond by significantly increasing um, interest rates. And of course, many business models uh, then couldn't um, withstand um, those central bank actions, which were necessary, of course, given the context. And because of those banks failing, I think the number actually, if I remember correctly, is about 22 banks uh, which folded. Um, you had to experience the kind of consolidation which resulted in what we have uh, in terms of um, few large uh, banks. I think it's been quite clear in definitely what I understand as government policy 
that competition um, and greater levels of dynamism uh, are required in the sector. And there has been actually uh, important changes, I think, in the last five years with the licensing of new, um, much more nimble and, and, and dynamic um, uh, smaller banks. And of course, I mean, whether they grow to actually be um, same size as, as, the, as, the, as the incumbents, time will tell. But um, quite important to say they are not uh, too small and therefore ignorable uh, from a competition perspective. I think um, they actually have already uh, been felt uh, in terms of what their business models is and, and what uh, parts of the market they're targeting. So, so definitely the issue of competition is one we can still get better. Uh, but there is, I think, a, a, an important historical context which has led to where we are. And it's not only a story uh, of, of, of barriers to entry. That's the point I wanted to make. Mm. And, and I think that makes sense. Um, uh, I, I, I had a question about um, the uh, Viceroy incident. Of course, I, we, we are still going to talk a bit about that later on in, 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 the, in the conversation. Um, but it seemed to me as I was listening to the press briefing that um, the, the regulator obviously had a vested interest in protecting um, the soundness of the bank in question at, at, at the um, media briefing. Um, but it seemed to me that you had a, an obligation to protect the bank not only um, against the false claims that were leveled against it, but you know, because of the uh, market's impact or the market's reaction to that bank. Um, so say, for instance, all the allegations against the particular bank were true. Um, it seems to me that the FSCA would have been more or at least equally inclined to have protected the image of the bank because, as you quite rightly mentioned, banks are, you know, strategically and systemically important. Uh, and so what, what, whatever happens to one bank, you know, may cause systemic problems, you know, right around or across the market. Um, so is it true or would you guys have protected a bank or the bank had it been found wanting or had it, you know, been found guilty of some of the claims that were leveled against it? Because it seems to me that you have a, an interest in protecting um, the, the the financial institution because of the impact that it could it, that it can have and it seems to me that that's precisely what I meant when I said that you know some of these institutions are getting too big to fail in a sense that you know they can get away with a lot of uh, crime if you will um, because they know that their survival is in the interests um, of the of the people regulating the institutions um, I'm not sure if that point comes across as well as I wanted to. I don't think it did. Um, but, you know, could you perhaps uh, respond to that about the, um, the inclination for regulators to protect banks, whether they behave well or not, given their systemic importance? Yeah, so, so maybe I want to focus on the market integrity objective of the FSCA, because I think um, the soundness bits and... Um, CFI uh, regulatory framework is obviously one that is led by, by, by the Saab. What the point we were making uh, in, at, at, the, at the conference was that one of the uh, considerations in arriving at the administrative, administrative penalty, as opposed to what informed whether you investigate or not, um, was the impact of the actions. Let me take you through a couple of things. The first is that uh, Capital was a CFI already in 2018 when the statements were made. And if they were only relying on the outcome of an investigation which comes up three years later, they could have folded. The point is that at that time, the prudential regulator, who was very close to 
through the business model and the assumptions, especially around impairments, write-off policies, and so on, had to communicate to the public, and I think it was correct, that the statements that have been made are not correct. And because that was done, it was done publicly, it was important for the regulator in the market space, charged with market integrity, to look into the statements that were made. And during that conversa those conversations, it was determined that these statements uh, are false and misleading. And of course, in addition, it was also discovered uh, that there were particular incentives in the agreements between Viceroy and one of their clients around the positions that they'd taken on the share, which um, provided them with the financial incentive uh, to publish statements which will result in the direct um, loss of value um, in, in, the, in, the, in the share price. And, 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 and therefore, that was the interest. The interest of the FSCA was market integrity, that those that make statements that, public, that publish research on securities in a regulated market have to do so responsibly. You would have done that and you needed to as, as a regulator, even if you're not dealing with a CV, even if you're dealing with a small um, player who is similarly affected in terms of the business model. One of the things I emphasized in that conversation was that we take a seriously dim view of the business model and approach. And quite importantly, that even when the facts are put to you as a researcher, that in fact, what you're saying is incorrect and this is how it is, this is why it is, you are given an opportunity in terms of the law, the Financial Markets Act, to publish full and frank corrections if you discover that the basis for your research or for your opinions was incorrect. Mm. And Viceroy refused to do so. Mm. So, so I think it's important to have that complete uh, picture. There's a market integrity objective that the, the FSCA is, is looking after regardless of the size of which uh, entity is listing which securities, but in deciding um, the level of that penalty and the decision, given the outcome of the investigation, the FSCA has to then also consider the impact um, of, of those actions. And in this particular case, uh, part of the impact was that uh, you were impacting a systemically important financial institution, which is a bank, uh, whose failure has got implications for public interest considerations which a regulator cannot ignore, including uh, that, of course, you could, have, uh, you could have had a run, you could have had systemic instability, you could have had, of course, recourse to public um, resources had, had that occurred. Mm. And, I, and I think that makes sense. And I think just to touch on the FSCA, um, I had a few questions about um, the, the organization. I mean, as I, as I mentioned to you, I, I, I do hold a BCom degree and I'm, I have aspirations of going into the financial services industry as well. Um, and, you know, I, I have got a few friends as well who are in the industry already and who, you know, 
frequently talk to me about well, what it is like to work in the industry. Uh, and one of my friends came down to visit and I was asking him about his new job because he started working a few months ago. And I asked him how it was, how it was seeing clients, how it was doing business with new people, new businesses. Um, and of course, while he was excited to be uh, you know, finally working and finally independent, um, he did complain about the onerous uh, uh, compliance regulations that, ha that have in his words, overburdened the financial services sector. Um, do you think that that might not have uh, you know, s some consequences or negative consequences on business done with clients? Could that not, you know, in some way uh, come at the expense of, um, you know, consumers on the lower end of the market, if you will? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think the the issue of regulatory burden is is an important one to continuously um, factor in as a regulator. And I think, I mean, we, we are grappling with the same kind of issues um, with our counterparts in other parts of the world. What is the level of regulation that is just right? Um, because the financial sector touches uh, almost every single uh, citizen. And because of asymmetry of information, and also because of real experiences of customers, uh, experiences with abuse, um, mis-selling, overpricing, lack of disclosure, I mean, the list uh, goes on and on. You really need to have a regulator that has their interests at heart. So it's really striking that balance. Um, you want to regulate and make sure that it's still dynamism and competitiveness uh, and attractiveness um, to enter the sector and of course for people to, to succeed once they're in the sector but there is the need to regulate especially on the on the conduct side to make sure that things that might not happen automatically if players are left to their own devices um, they are forced to take those into account given the need to protect customers, so it's a it's a it's an ongoing debate, and it's always always about um, striking the, the the right balance. Yeah, and and I think as an extension of that point is um, the, the the funding model of, um, of of the of the FSCA in particular. Um, so, firstly, is it true that the FSCA is funded by levies um, uh, leveled uh, on the uh, companies that it regulates? Um, because if, if that is the case, then um, I think it naturally follows that... Yes. Uh, I beg your pardon? That's correct. Uh, the, F the FSCA is funded uh, through through levies uh, on regulated institutions. Um, in fact, there is currently um, a levies bill that is being um, taken through the various paces by the Treasury. And this is the funding model of Twin Peaks. So the provincial authority will be similarly funded uh, as well. Um, and this is a funding model that you'll find in many parts of the world for financial regulators. Mm. Um, so, so, so I guess the question I have about that is, could that um, cost that is levied on, uh, on these regulated institutions not then translate or be transmitted into higher prices for consumers? Because we know that there is in some way um, somebody who is going to you know, bear these costs. So, and, and I increasingly worry about you know, who... Um, on who on whose backs these costs will be borne, and it seems to me that it's the consumer uh, at the end of the day who's ultimately prejudiced, um, and, and not the taxpayer in this case. Well, that's correct. I don't know if I would say they're prejudiced. I mean, there's a direct correlation and link between what regulators deliver for consumers. That's why regulators exist uh, in the first place. 
Um, and yes, the core structure of financial institutions rests on uh, the ability to price for it on those who consume products and services that they sell. Um, so paying for, for regulation, I guess, is, is, is part of the core structure of regulated entities. But here, I think there's a quite clear link between uh, what customers are paying for, given the work uh, and mandate, um, legislative mandate uh, of, of, of regulators. Mm. Um, and, and I think just to um, perhaps add a final question on this, while, while I can accept that um, there, there's a direct correlation between the amount paid by the customer um, and the protection, so to speak, that the regulator provides them, um, I, I, I think what that scenario doesn't take into consideration um, is the swath of the population that is priced out by the price hikes um, that come as a result of the um, of the price or, or, or the cost of regulation, um, and it seems to me, as I said earlier, that the the lower end of the consumer market is the end that is severely disadvantaged because they are no longer going to get um, advice and financial products because they're simply you know being priced out of their reach, um, and you know it seems to me that they, that is a huge area of concern, um, particularly when we st when, when we talk about and consider the funding and pricing model um, th th that some of these institutions, regulated institutions, now suddenly have to take on, given the extra levy that's li that that's put on them by the uh, FSCA? But I mean, I, I think, to be fair, one would have to conduct actual analysis on the proportion of the cost, cost base of the financial sector which pertains uh, to what they pay for the regulator. I mean, I don't think it would be fair to say the cost that they they, they, their contribution to the cost structure of the FSA is what results uh, in large parts of the population being priced out of obtaining products and services. I don't think that's a fair assessment at all. Mm. Um, uh, well, I guess the I funding base of the FSA just, 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 to, just to be out there is, is less than a billion rand. What is the size of the financial sector? Uh, I beg your pardon? The, 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 the cost base of the FSA Mm -hmm. is less than a billion rand mm -hmm. a year. Compare that to the cost structure of the financial sector, mm -hmm. oh, of the entire financial sector and, and its size. So, yeah. so I think that I, I get the point that you're making theoretically, but I wouldn't think that in this case, uh, when you think about um, the cost implications and pricing out some parts of the market from, from, from products and services relates to what the sector contributes. Mm -hmm to funding the FSCA. Yeah, and, and uh, I think that makes sense. Um, I, I really do. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I think you quite accurately uh, and aptly summed it up. You know, it is a theoretical um, argument um, that, that could be leveled against, um, you know, the funding model. Um, and of course, without the necessary facts, it, 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 it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Um, but I also wanted to touch on uh, one of the things that I'm most passionate about, which is, you know, financial education and financial literacy. And that is, of course, uh, part of the FSCA's mandate. So um, how is it that the FSCA is looking at, uh, you know, advancing financial education? Because I often get very frustrated um, when, I, when I have conversations with my friends and they tell me about, you know, some of their financial plans in the future. But then when I ask them to chart a way forward and to lay out a plan for how they're planning on achieving a lot of these things, they cannot, you know, lay a chronological and coherent plan. And I think a lot of that goes down to our inability mm -hmm. as a society to have educated 
people um you know on, on on their finances because you know at some point people are going to be handling their finances and i just think it's completely irresponsible um to live in a country that just completely overlooks um the um the financial education of of, of the populace and you know as i said in one of the previous podcast with my financial planning lecturer at the university, you know, um, the fact that people aren't being taught fi finance and financial literacy in schools means that the responsibility of educating them about finances is, you know, sort of deferred to their parents and, you know, other members of society who themselves had no education in financial literacy and the works. And so it's just an endless cycle that isn't about to end unless something drastic is done about it. And so I was very excited when I saw that the FSCA's mandate, or at least one of the, one of the FSCA's other mandates, is to educate and to permeate um, you know, financial education. So what, it is, what, what is it that you guys have in place to ensure that more and more people are hearing the good news, I almost want to call it, um, and how, how, how is it that you are putting um, the, the plan into action? Yeah, so, so quite right. One of the things actually that um, important changes to the mandate of the FSCA is uh, to make financial education and the provision of financial education programs uh, an explicit part of that mandate, which was not the case um, in terms of the of the FSB. I think that one of the things that we have realized is that while we've got programs in place, awareness campaigns and so on, and we've got partners uh, that we work with, that the people who are most important with this are financial institutions themselves, because they are very close to their constituencies, being their client base, and also have got uh, the wherewithal to understand what uh, information and education gaps um, exist with, with their clients. The point that you make around um, making this a formal part of the education uh, system is, is something that we are actually considering very seriously. Currently, we do have partnerships with schools around the, around the country um, where we've got competitions and things that incentivize students to think about financial management and so on. Um, but these things always feel that they are not, uh, they're not ever enough. Um, I also have got uh, some friends and family members of who, whose management of, of their finances is poor because I think they lack uh, information, guidance and education and so on. And it's always about also what, what platform um, one uses to deliver uh, these education programs because of the ever-changing, of course, landscape in terms of uh, technology. So, so it's something very central uh, to our work. We've got these uh, partnerships going, um, but of course, we can always review um, uh, the efficacy thereof. And that's one of the things that I certainly plan to be focusing on as, um, as, as a new commissioner. Well, I'm still new, it's been three months yeah. um, at the FSCA. Mm. No, I, I think three months is uh, quite um, infant, infantile. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I owed you a congratulations at the beginning of this uh, uh, podcast. So, yeah, the congratulations comes now. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, with financial education, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very concerned about it. And I think it translates into a whole host of, uh, you know, terrifying statistics, you know, th th that are made public for... Um, for, for economists uh, in, in South Africa. So for instance, the fact that South Africa uh, has one of the lowest savings rates in the world is, is a point that's very easy to overlook uh, for some people, but I think it is, a, you know, it's, it's a very, very important point, And it's one thing that I think we need to take very, very seriously. But I think, um, you know, it, yeah, and, and I think, yeah, we, we really have to take it seriously because it does have a lot of long-term implications, um, not only for South Africans in, in particular, but also, you know, for the economic landscape in general. Um, 
I actually wanted to get your thoughts on the idea of the uh, basic income grant that is being proposed um, of late to try and subsidize South Africans with a form of income. Do you think that that will go, uh, you know, a long way in aiding us or, or you know, addressing some of the issues that we have? Or do you think that the um, the support base or the lack thereof um, is, is, is going to, um, you know, collapse the idea um, on, under its own assumptions? Well, I mean, I think uh, National Treasury is probably best placed to talk to this. But all I'll say is that if you take into account our level of unemployment, if you take into account the challenges that we have, structural challenges around um, uh, which affect our level of growth uh, in this economy for as long as possible, I don't think that uh, we should easily dismiss any kind of intervention which helps to ensure higher levels of inclus inclusiveness in our economy, higher levels of mobility as people need to, to be getting around and then looking for work. Um, but all of this has to be considered as a package. I don't think you've single out one intervention and it's a, a, it's a silver bullet. We have to think about structural reforms. We have to be consistent in implementing plans once we've agreed uh, on plans. South Africa is a, is a country very rich in terms of ideas we've done. Um, macroeconomic diagnosis um, many, many times in this country uh, over the last 20, 25 years. And of course, we've, we've famously published um, uh, plans. The challenge is in implementation. It is in the capacity to execute and to stay the course and to do so consistently. And I think uh, the basic language should be considered as part of that package of things which are necessary um, for a step change, which is sorely needed um, in, in the economic trajectory uh, of, this, of this country. Yeah, um, and, and I think just perhaps a final question um, uh, for the podcast is, you know, w what is your take on uh, Bitcoin in particular and crypto in general? Uh, you mentioned in passing uh, in the media roundtable the other day uh, that you are not the biggest fan um, of, of the new technologies. And I'm just I was just very you know interested in hearing your perspectives um, on, on, on these issues. So, yeah, w w what do you think of Bitcoin in particular? It's correct and its characteristics. And I know you did mention in passing in the um, media roundtable discussion that you do not think that it is um, a medium of exchange. And I, I would agree with that. You know, I don't think that we are ready to use it um, as, as, as a medium of exchange. But I do think that it has something good going for it. Um, so yeah, um, w what do you think about Bitcoin in particular? Uh, let me maybe talk about um, the technology as opposed to the product. Because I think, I think there are um, very good uses that, um, that can be derived from from the technology. I mean, I think, I think that even the governor, I think he was talking um, on a Twitter platform uh, two weeks or so ago, talking about some of the things that even the central bank um, has has tried to sort of explore in terms of the the, the, the technology. Um, I think to talk about you know Bitcoin specifically, I think we need as a regulatory community to communicate, I think, in a, in a much more clear way on the concerns we have from a consumer protection perspective. And, and some of them talk to what the underlying investment model is. How is value derived? What 
at the levels of transparency, given that it is very, very important to be transparent in any kind of financial product. Um, and of course, the concerns that we have around integrity, so anti-money laundering, uh, combating of uh, the, the financing of terrorism and so on. And I think all, all of these things um, really contribute to the kind of reticence that I was talking to uh, the other day when I was saying um, I'm, I'm not a fan, uh, so, so, so to speak. So I think there's a lot of things that we need to unpack and communicate um, yeah. in a very forthright way. Because I, I really am concerned that increasingly there are, there are scams, increasingly people don't understand what they're getting themselves into. Um, and even those that should know better, um, once they become victims, um, they still point to the regulator as having failed them without warning them. So, 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 so that's what uh, I'll say about um, what what we think, what we need to do as a regulator in this space. Mm. So, um, just to be clear, you you do see it as uh, as an effective store of value, just not as uh, as a currency. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> to be a, to be to be um, to be clear. I, I'm not sure if it's an, it's an effective store of value. Uh, I'm certainly sure that it's not an effective medium of exchange. Um, and another consideration is, is whether it's a unit of account. And uh, even there, um, I think the jury is still out. Sure. So what, what do you make of some of the countries that have adopted uh, Bitcoin as legal tender? I mean, I can cite uh, El Salvador. I can cite, as of late, Ukraine. Um, and you know, etc. What do you make of their move to um, adopt and accept crypto as legal tender? Well, I mean, um, it's interesting examples, right? I don't know if it's countries we look to as examples <laughs> of uh, uh, path-breaking uh, initiatives or from on the regulatory front, or even in terms of the financial sector. Um, so that's all I'll say about about them. I want to keep my friendships <laughs> in those countries. <laughs> nah, enough said. Enough said. Um, but yeah, no, Unati, I, I've appreciated this conversation a lot. I mean, I, I wish we had more time to get into more issues, but I am respectful of the fact that you have other commitments to get to. Um, but is there perhaps a final word that you would like to, live, to leave with our listeners? Perhaps, I mean, it's, it's about the role of the FSCA. I think, I think that that it's, it's, a, it's a very exciting time uh, to be at the helm of the conduct regulator. Um, I think that uh, we, are, we have every intention of making sure that um, customers feel protected in the financial sector. And, um, and, and yeah, uh, looking forward to further interactions through platforms like, like this uh, with, with the public as we need to communicate and articulate um, the, the objectives of the FSCA and how we benefit uh, the public, which is why we are we are in existence. Yeah. Thank you very much for for for, for this invitation. I really enjoyed the conversation as well. Uh, I I really enjoyed it as well. I hope the listeners did too. Um, and yeah, just I mean, all the best for the work that you're doing at the FSCA. Um, I mean, I I was very shocked at first when I heard about the uh, fine or the you know the size of the fine that you guys had issued out to Viceroy. Um, but I mean, each to to his own. I mean, and you know, good luck on 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 some of the other you know paths that you're set to take. I mean, I really think that you are the correct man for the job. And yeah, I mean, I just think to the listeners, you know, we are still a non-profitable organization uh, and can only continue to exist with your support. Uh, so if you enjoyed today's conversation and would like to support us, please head on over to our website at nmonline.co.za. That's nmonline.co.za. Please click on the support option if you're interested in supporting. You can also while 
while you're at it, check out some of our other content. That is, and I'll repeat one more time, nmonline.co.za um, and our support option if you're interested in supporting. Unati, it's been a very, very interesting conversation, thoroughly enjoyable and very insightful. And thank you so much once again for stopping by and sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Only a pleasure. Thanks so much. Have a good day.